Amen. Well, it's wonderful to see everybody here this morning on this Lord's Day. We appreciate so much you coming out to worship the Lord with us and fellowship together and open the Scriptures together. And if you're visiting with us, uh, we're especially glad you're here. Thank you for coming to spend this Lord's Day with us. If you are visiting, you've come uh, to church this morning as we're finishing up a study of a, a New Testament book. We're finishing the, the book of 1 Peter. We've arrived now at the finish line. It's our 25th message um, in this book. And uh, for me personally, I'm sad to be leaving this letter behind. It's been a rich study for me. And uh, I pray that uh, the Lord's used it in our church body to shape us and to grow us in God's grace. Now, you might be wondering, well, what's next? Where are we headed um, in, in the future here in our pulpit ministry? Well, next week, I want to do just kind of a one-time message. Then I'm going to be gone on vacation. Then when we get back, I want to bring a, a series, a brief series on the heavenly rewards. I want to talk about uh, what the Bible says about the judgment seat of Christ and rewards. Uh, then uh, we'll be moving, Lord willing, around that time, early October, over to our uh, new sanctuary, the old gym. We'll be finished by that time. We want to kind of spend the month of October uh, looking at uh, our church and just dedicating this building and our church to the Lord. So we'll have some special messages there. Then I want to do a series on the topic of work, uh, just um, what, how work and how work relates to what we do and who we are as God's people. And then that'll kind of get us into the holidays. We'll begin a new book study um, after the first of the year. So that hopefully is a little bit helpful about where we're going. Hopefully it's decently clear. Uh, but it's, uh, this morning we're in 1 Peter. Again, we're finishing the book. If you want to open there to the end of 1 Peter. And as Peter closes this letter, he kind of sums up the thrust of what this letter is about. And we're going to focus this morning on verses 10 and 11 because we discussed many of the issues in verses 12 to 14 when we introduced the book. So I'll read all of verses 10 to 14, but we're going to focus this morning our attention on just verses 10 and 11. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to, to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, and Silvanus there is Silas, who was uh, with Paul, you remember, on his uh, missionary journey, and he's here with Peter as well. He says, through Silas, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, and the she here probably is a metaphor of a church, and Babylon, here's probably a code name for Rome. So she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, uh, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ Jesus. Well, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Uh, once there was a large conference in Great Britain where religious experts from all over the world were gathered together to debate what made the Christian faith so unique. And as those experts debated, they threw out some different possibilities. Um, first was uh, the incarnation of God coming in human flesh. But they concluded that that wasn't it because other religions have gods appearing as humans. Um, some others suggested the resurrection. But again, this was overruled because uh, several religions claimed someone coming back from the dead. The intriguing discussion continued until finally uh, the uh, famed author C.S. Lewis entered the room. 
And the debaters turn to him and they ask him, what is it that makes Christianity so different from every other religion in the world? And without hesitation, Lewis replied, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And C.S. Lewis, in saying that, I believe he was dead right. It's grace that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Uh, what the, the sun is to the day and what the moon is to the night, grace is to Christianity. I mean, grace is at the center of Christianity, and grace is at the circumference of Christianity, and it's everything in between. Um, grace is not just a part of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. And I believe grace is the most basic uh, uh, Christian tenet and truth uh, in our faith. Uh, you and I live and we move and we have our being in the grace of God. And that's why grace is a, a key facet of our teaching here at Faith Bible Church. I pray that you'll hear it discussed often here in our church services and our ABFs and our, our youth ministry and children's ministry. Um, our, our, we have four key values here at the church. Our first key va uh, core value is to believe the gospel. And the gospel that we are to believe is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel that tells us that God has saved us through His grace, which is unmerited and undeserved. In fact, grace means more than being saved, and we don't deserve it. It means we're saved when we actually deserve the opposite uh, of what God gives to us. And it's my prayer that as we think often here and meditate often and teach often about the grace of God, that it will fo foster a, a gospel culture and a grace culture in our church, and that, that grace will be at the heart of everything we do here at Faith Bible Church. Now, when we talk about the grace of God, most believers have a very narrow view of the grace of God. When we think about God's grace, we think about primarily God's grace and forgiveness. We tend to limit God's grace to our salvation from sin, again, or our forgiveness. But grace is much more than just the divine push that gets us going. I mean, it's more than something that just gets us started in the Christian life. The grace of God is an all-encompassing, inclusive, all-sufficient activity of God on behalf of us, uh, whereby He and His goodness and mercy will land us uh, someday in heaven. Uh, the Christian life is a life of total grace, and that's what I've entitled uh, the sermon here this morning. Our story, your story and my story, if we're believers in Christ, is the story of God's grace. It's the story of God's grace from beginning to end. Uh, from top to bottom, Christianity is a movement of the grace of God. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Whatever Paul is at that time, Paul says, whatever I am, I am that by the grace of God. And that's what every one of us who know the Lord Jesus can say here this morning. Again, that's my story, and that's the story for all of us. And one of the things we need to do constantly in our lives is put the amazing back into grace. To me, it's astounding that it's an astounding picture of our depravity that something as amazing as grace can become kind of old hat to us, or we can become apathetic about it in our Christian lives. And so I pray the message this morning will put some of the amazing back into grace for us, because that's the focus here of these final two verses in the body of 1 Peter. Verses 10 and 11 in the body of the letter, then verses 12 to 14 are just kind of the uh, 
benediction or conclusion. But in 10 and 11, these verses kind of crystallize the message of the book as a whole. Now, if you look down in verse 12, I love this because Peter tells us why he wrote this book. And I always love it when an author in the New Testament tells you why they wrote uh, the book or the letter that they authored. Notice what he says in verse 12, I have written to you briefly. Now that's preacher talk. You know, it's not not brief necessarily, but that's the way we say these things. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says, look, I've testified and written, this is the grace of God, this is what you're to stand firm in. You say, well, what does he mean, this is the grace of God? Well, the whole way of life described in 1 Peter is the grace of God. He's saying, all of this that I've written, this is the grace of God. So the entire Christian life can really be called the grace of God. So 1 Peter really is about total grace. And you find the word grace nine times kind of sprinkled through this letter. It starts in chapter 1, verse 2. And here at the end of the book, in in verse 5, verse 10, and again in verse 12, we find the grace of God mentioned. In fact, if you remember back this long ago when we started the book, we actually used the grace of God as our primary outline for the book. Since this whole book is the grace of God, we broke it down into three sections The first third of the book is the grace of God and salvation. That's kind of the key word in the first chapter and a half. Then the middle section of the book, you remember, was God's grace and submission. That was the key word there in the middle. And then the last third of the book is the grace of God and suffering. So the book of 1 Peter is about the grace of God, which is this whole way of life described in this book. Now, when we get to the end of the book in verse 10, Peter calls God the God of all grace. It's the only time you have that title for God in the New Testament. And it means that God is the possessor and the giver of all grace. All grace ultimately finds its origin in God and God alone. And you could translate this, the God of all grace, as the God of every kind of grace. So God is the the God of every kind or every variety of grace. So God's grace is amazing, but it's also abounding. Every kind of grace comes from God. Now, if we think of God's grace as kind of an art gallery filled with stunning portraits, what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, is three masterpieces in the gallery of God's grace. These are three aspects of the grace of God that we find in these two verses. And it starts out with saving grace, or we could call this starting grace. Saving grace is how God deals with sinners. And this is the facet of God's grace that we're most familiar with. Again, when we think of the grace of God, our minds generally go to saving grace, how God deals with sinful, lost people. But the Bible's clear that you and I are saved and secured by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. The Bible's clear that we're saved and forgiven by the riches of the grace of God apart from any human works or effort or merit or performance. And nothing could be clearer than that in the New Testament. Let me just go back. Uh, why don't you go back to Romans with me? And I want to just look at uh, three verses there real quickly that I think will help 
uh, flesh this out a bit for us. Back in Romans chapter 3, I'm sure all of us know Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and all of us are constantly falling short of God's glory. But the next verse, verse 24 says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So Christ has come and paid the purchase price through redemption, and because of that, you and I can be justified or declared righteous before a holy God, notice, as a gift by His grace. So it's undeserved, it's unmerited, it's a gift that you and I receive uh, through the grace of God. Now look over at chapter 4 and verse 16. I love this verse in speaking of the grace of God. It says in Romans 4, 16, for this reason it is by faith, talking about salvation, in order that may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed. Now think about this for a moment. If, if, if someone were to tell you that you're saved 95% by the grace of God and then 5% by your own performance, you could never be sure that you're going to go to heaven because you'd constantly be wondering about that 5% and whether you were doing enough and you were doing it well enough. The only way that our salvation can ever be sure, that it can be guaranteed, is if it's totally a work of God and of His grace. Because if any part of it is up to us, we can mess it up and fall short somehow. So when we put our head on the pillow at night and we pray and we think about God and maybe we think about eternal things, the only way that we can lie there in assurance and ultimate hope and say, I know for sure that I'm going to go to heaven is if salvation's all of grace. It's, it's guaranteed because it's a work that God does for us. We play no part in securing it for ourselves. Go over to chapter 11 and verse 6, Romans eleven six. 6. There's so much about grace in the book of Romans, but just one other point here I think is helpful. He's talking here again about God's choosing us, about salvation. He says, if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What he's saying is if you try to just add in a sliver or 1% works, then you've totally gotten rid of the concept of grace because grace by definition excludes works. So grace and works are like oil and water. They cannot be mixed. You can't even mix them together a little bit. Salvation must totally be of human works and human merit, or it must totally be of the grace of God. But it can't be a mixture of those two. Otherwise, he says, it's no longer grace. And then, of course, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for grace you've been saved, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone uh, should boast. So our salvation is totally, completely, 100% by the grace of God. And because of that, our salvation is guaranteed and it can be sure. Now, back in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, he mentions there the God of all grace who called you. So this is this 
starting or initial or saving aspect of God's grace where God has called us. And the calling of God is His effective work by which He inducts believers into a saving relationship with Himself. That's God's calling. And God is the one who initiates and the one who secures our salvation. God has taken the initiative to call us to participate in His glory. And God's grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin. I run into people who profess to be Christians sometimes, and they'll have this this lurking suspicion in the back of their minds that they may not end up being saved after all because of some grievous sin they've committed. There's just kind of this something in the back of their mind that I, I know God's gracious and I know God saves us by grace, but you don't know what I've done in my life. And I have a struggle to believe that God's grace can really cover my sin. Maybe it's uh, an abortion that someone had, or maybe they participated in that. Maybe a, a mistreatment of a child when they were younger, or maybe it's some horrible addiction that led a person to do all kinds of things. Maybe it's an adulterous affair uh, in your marriage. On and on we could go. But I like what someone said years ago. They said, the good news is the good news because of the bad news. I mean, the good news is only the good news because of the bad news. And the bad news is that uh, we are, are, are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are doomed without God, without Christ. But the good news is the good news because of the bad news. And the grace of God is able to cover any sin. Erwin Lutzer put it like this. He says, there's more grace in God's heart than there will ever be sin in your life. It's a great statement. There's more grace in the heart of God than there will ever be sin in your life. And that's, that's exactly what Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds. Some translations say where sin increases. You know, grace superabounds or, or increases more. But I, I love it where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You cannot out the grace of God. Well, that doesn't mean we get saved and go out and want to live some ungodly life. If you've really been saved by God's grace, you want to live for Him. But you cannot out of the grace of God. If you sin a ton, God's grace is 10 tons. If you sin a mile, God's grace is 10 miles. You can never out His grace. There's a great old story about uh, the, the Straits of Gibraltar there in Spain. And years ago, there on the Pillars of Hercules, they had inscribed there, Ne plus ultra, which means nothing more beyond. They believed there was nothing beyond the Pillars of Hercules. No one uh, dared venture there. But with the discovery of the new world by Columbus, the national motto of Spain became plus ultra, more beyond. And that's the way it is with the grace of God. No matter what we do, no matter how we failed, there is always more of the grace of God uh, beyond. And I pray that'll seep down in and percolate down into our hearts and our minds here this morning. Now, as amazing as the saving grace of God is, that doesn't exhaust our grasp of grace. There's also what I call here this morning sustaining grace or surviving grace. And that is the idea that God will finish what he starts. Notice in verse 10, the God of all grace, he called you, that's saving grace, notice, to his eternal glory. 
So God is going to see us through the end and bring us to eternal glory. Now, it doesn't say he's going to bring you to five years glory or 10 years glory or 100 years glory or 1,000 years glory. He's going to bring us to eternal glory. So the one who called us by his saving grace is also the one who will make sure that we make it to the end and make it throughout all of eternity. Someone has said that grace is the bud of glory and glory is the flower of grace. So that there's grace for this life, there's glory for the end of life. God covers us in his grace and he calls us to his glory. And what Peter's doing here is he's raising the horizon of his his readers and of us to look beyond this life to eternal glory. And if you know anything about 1 Peter, we've said over and over again that the believers there were suffering some degree of persecution uh, for their faith in Jesus Christ. So he wants to give his readers the long view of eternal glory and assure them they will make it there by the grace of God. So beyond the hurt of this life, there's heaven. Uh, Beyond the grind of this life, there is glory. So we live in grace looking for eternal glory. And again, if you've been with us through this study, the the word glory occurs 14 times in 1 Peter. He's constantly over and over again pointing us to the end to give us hope. But what he's saying here is only the God of all grace through this sustaining grace can see us through to the finish line. And to me, that's encouraging because even if God saved me by his grace at the beginning, if I had to keep myself to the end to be saved, I'd be lost. So he doesn't just start us in grace, but he sustains us by his grace as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, God will confirm you to the end blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the great verses in the Bible, Philippians 1.6, for I'm confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He began the work. He began it. He's the one who continues it. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one um, who consummates it. But if we don't accept the grace of God, we're never going to experience God's glory for eternity. So he's telling us here, pin all of your hope on the gracious gift of final deliverance through Christ. Because notice what he says in verse 10. The God of all grace, he called you to his eternal glory. And how did he do it? In Christ. It's in Christ. God's grace is bound up in the person of Jesus. In fact, if you'll let your eyes go on down the page a little bit, you'll notice the end of verse 14, the very last words of 1 Peter are the words, in Christ. God's grace is manifest in a person. In fact, over in the book of Titus, it says, the grace of God has appeared. It's talking about the coming of Jesus into this world. So salvation is not by our works or our effort or our performance. We don't come by our own strength or effort. It's not by our doing. It's by his dying. It's not by our merit in any way. It's by his mercy. We have to take Christ to get the glory. All of this is in Christ. So you have to take Jesus to get the glory. Like someone said years ago, you need to put your faith where God puts your sin, and that is in the person of Jesus. 
So saving grace puts us on the path to sustaining grace that then sees us all the way home. So those are kind of the bookends of the gracious work of God, starting grace or saving grace, and this sustaining or surviving grace. But in between those two is our life. So between saving grace and the sustaining grace is what we might call suffering grace. So saving grace at the beginning, sustaining grace sees us through to the end, but in the middle we need suffering grace as we endure the trials and troubles of this life. So it really is here total grace. And the final masterpiece in the gallery of God's grace here is suffering grace. Notice he says in verse 10, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, he tells us here that suffering is inevitable. He says, after you've suffered a little while, it's not, you know, if you suffer, you're going to. And all of us who've lived any length of time know that's a reality. After you've suffered a little while. So it's inevitable, but notice it's temporary. After you've suffered a little while. And we also see here that it's under the control of God. He uses it for our good. He'll ultimately use it to perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish us. Now, when he says that after you've suffered for a little while... Some of you here, you may have been enduring some serious suffering and trial for years. You'll say, man, a little while, it's gone on. I mean, this is, it's just totally uh, uh, diminishing me in my life and weakening me. It's been going on for years. So how can you just kind of say it's just a little while? Peter's not writing this and God's not communicating this to us to minimize our suffering or to make light of it. He's simply putting it in perspective and saying, in light of eternity, in this life, it's, it's just a little while. It's temporary. I mean, think about this. Even a whole lifetime of suffering is just a little while in light of the endless ages of eternity. I mean, Paul had this perspective in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, when he said this, for momentary light affliction... By the way, let me just pause for a moment. If you go on to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about, you know, night spent in the deep, shipwrecks, being beaten with rods, being whipped, um, you know, being stoned. And Paul says, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. So saying, look, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all glory is going to come and restore you. I like the story, uh, Nicky Gumbel tells this in a book I read of his years ago. There's a one-year-old boy, a little one-year-old uh, child, and he fell down some stairs, a flight of stairs, and shattered his back. And he spent much of the time of his childhood and his youth in and out of the hospital. And a man named Gavin Reed, who was the former bishop of Maidstone, he interviewed him in in church one Sunday. And in talking to this young man about all of his trials, in the comments he made, the young man said, I still believe that God is fair. And uh, Gavin Reed stopped him and and said, well, how old are you? And he said, I'm 17. And he said, well, how many years have you been in the hospital? And the boy said, I've been in hospital for 13 years. And Gavin Reed asked him, he says, do you think that's fair? 
And the 17-year-old boy said this, God has got all of eternity to make it up to me. Now, that's a perspective, isn't it? And sometimes when we face the trials of this life, it's a wonderful thing to remind ourselves God is going to have all of eternity to make it up to us. And he'll make it up to us in ways that are beyond our ability now to grasp. Someone asked an old man one time his favorite phrase in the Bible. He says, my favorite phrase is, it came to pass. And you think about that with the trials of life. Whatever it is, um, it came to pass. Uh, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said, affliction may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. That's important for us to remember. Notice the, the contrast here. While suffering is passing, glory here in this passage is permanent. Now, you know, last week we talked about Satan and, and demons and all in chapters 5, verses 8 and 9. And I think there's a connection here because Satan wants to wear us down and weaken us with the struggles of life. But God wants to uh, strengthen us through the difficulties of life. Satan comes in his afflictions to destroy us, but God allows these things to develop us, to strengthen us. And Paul uses four words here to describe what the God of all grace will do for us when we suffer. And notice he says, he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, if you read a lot of commentaries, they'll say that these are four things that God is going to do for us when we get to heaven. And other commentators seem to focus on that these are things God does for us now. I think it's both. I think these things that God does for us as we suffer, God does them now. They commence now, but they'll be consummated um, ultimately in heaven. And notice he says that God himself will perfect you. Uh, that word in the Greek is a word that means to make whole, to restore something to its original condition. It was used of mending torn nets. Of course, Peter was a fisherman, so he would have done that a lot. It was used of setting broken bones. So what this is saying is it's saying that God in his grace will mend us. God will make us whole. He'll put things right. Now, in the ultimate sense, that won't happen till we're with the Lord someday. But even in this life, we can count on the fact that God will, will come along in our lives and restore and repair the damage that sin and suffering bring to life. I love the words of Joel chapter 2, the prophet, where he says that God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And some of you here this morning may have a lot of locust-eaten years in your life, maybe some, some wasted years. You look back on those with great regret. But what a promise. God can restore even the years that the locusts have eaten. So if your life is falling apart today, God can restore it in His grace. If your marriage is falling apart today, God can come and restore it and he can mend it in his grace. But remember what we read back up in chapter 5 and verse 5, God fights the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we want God to do these things in our lives, oh, we have to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. These final three words here, confirm, strengthen, and establish, really they're just synonyms. Uh, that the middle word there, strengthen, has the idea of, of to put supports around something. The last word there, establish, has the idea of putting a foundation under you. 
So you put all this together, God will come and he will, uh, he will mend us, he'll put support around us, and he will set a firm foundation um, underneath us as we go through the struggles and the trials of life. And God does this in his grace. The Living Bible translates the last part of verse 10 like this. He will personally come and pick you up and set you firmly in place and make you stronger than ever. That's the suffering grace of God. Our God is the God of all grace. He's the God of every kind of grace. Whatever need we may have, God has grace that's suitable to meet that need. I like what uh, Ray Pritchard says. He says, if you're confused, God has grace for you. If you're discouraged, God has grace for you. If you're upset, He has grace for you. If you're angry, He has grace for you. If you're guilty, He has grace for you. If you're lonely, He has grace for you. If you feel like giving up, He has grace for you. If you feel like the world has turned against you, He has grace for you. Whatever kind of grace you need, God has an unlimited supply. He's the God of all grace. Now, this is not just an abstract principle. God himself intervenes for us. And I love verse 11 because it'd be wonderful to know that God's the God of all grace, but if God doesn't have the power to pull it off, it doesn't do us any good, right? So what does verse 11 say? To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the God of all grace is also the God of all dominion who has the power to cause his grace to prevail. Now, when Peter wrote this to his audience in the first century, it didn't look like that the dominion belonged to God. They're living under the iron fist of Rome, under a madman like Nero. Uh, Many of the believers are being killed in that day. It looks like anything but that God has the dominion. Uh, John Phillips, in his commentary on 1 Peter, puts it well. He says, Nero sat in godlike splendor in a marble palace at the heart of the world. All roads led to Rome. The tribute of the world flowed into his coffers. 10,000 slaves ministered to his wants and whims. A glittering guard in splendid uniforms stood stiffly around his throne, panoplied in gleaming gold and polished steel. He sat enthroned in luxury and power. One nod from him and all across Rome, far and wide, countless Christians were even then being hunted down and dipped in tar to become living candles to light his evening debauchery. Ambassadors from the nations of the world bowed at his feet. Princes from conquered lands were held hostage at his court. Nero had glory and dominion for a season, but a very short one at that. And then he says this, look at those despised and persecuted Christians, then look at Nero. These believers were far better off than he was because they bowed the knee at a higher throne than his. Their Lord ruled a hundred billion galaxies. Their king was the one who'd conquered death, one who had glory and dominion forever and ever. And all Peter can add to that truth is, amen. We look at our world today, and it doesn't look like, when you look at the world scene, that God is in dominion. It looks like, uh, you know, dominion may rest in Washington or in Moscow or Beijing or some other place. But God reminds us here, to Him be the glory 
the dominion forever and ever. God is the one who rules and who reigns. And the one who rules and reigns is the God of all glory, but he's also the God of all grace. And God's not just the God of a little bit of grace or the God of a lot of grace. He's the God of all grace. His grace is like an ocean, like a limitless supply that will keep breaking over our lives time and time again and will never run out in this life or the life to come. Think of that old song, Amazing Grace. It, it kind of really hints at this total grace of God. Think about the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's saving grace. Then think of that next verse that says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. That speaks of God's, uh, of the suffering grace that God gives to us in this life. But then think about the end of that third verse that says, "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." That's sustaining grace. The grace of God is going to take us all the way home and into the ages of eternity. God's grace will lead us home. Years ago, Charles Spurgeon uh, told a story about a man named Roland Hill, and he was given a large sum of money to give to a young pastor who was laboring in a slum area in London. And Roland Hill decided it wouldn't be best to give the money to this young man in a lump sum. So he divided it into a lot of smaller sums, and it, it took a long time in these smaller sums to give all of it to this young man. And as uh, Roland Hill would send this out, what he would do is he'd put the money in an envelope, and then on the, the uh, inside of the envelope in a piece of paper, he would write, more to come. So every time the young man got this chet, this money, every week in this envelope was, were the words, more to come. And it was a great encouragement to him in the ministry that he was carrying out. Well, Spurgeon, commenting on that later, said this, every blessing that comes from God is sent with the same message, more to follow. I, will, I forgive you your sins, but there's more to follow. I justify you in the righteousness of Christ, there's more to follow. Adopt you into my family, there's more to follow. I'll educate you for heaven, there's more to follow. I'll give you grace upon grace, but there's more to follow. I've helped you even to all the age, but there's more to follow. I will uphold you in the act of your death and then passing into the world of the Spirit. You'll find that my mercy and my grace has more to follow. Now, I love that. That's what the grace of God does for us. Whatever God does for us in this life, there's always more to follow, and it will go on through the endless ages of eternity. But it all starts with saving grace. You have to have that. There's no suffering grace. There's no sustaining grace unless you receive of the saving grace of God in your life. And you say this morning, well, how do I get this saving grace? Well, you do it by faith. You do it by believing and trusting in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you're saved, but it's through faith. Faith is the channel that receives and appropriates the grace of God. You know, sometimes these theological terms are a little bit hard for us to, to, to bring into to concrete ideas. I thought I'd help us with this this morning a little bit. You know, John Patton, I've mentioned him before, is a missionary in the South Pacific to cannibals there. And he was translating the Bible into their language. And you can imagine trying to take theological terms and translate them into another language. 
And he, they, he couldn't find a, a, a word in the, uh, the Anawan language for faith. So he had a man there that he'd taught some English, and they were trying to work this out. And so he was trying to come up with a word. And so finally, he sat down in a chair, and he said, what do you call this? And the man said, well, we call that, you know, setting down. And he knew that wasn't good enough. So what he did is he put his feet up on the chair, on the edge of the chair, and leaned back in the chair where all of his weight was in the chair. And then he asked the man, he said, what do you call that? He said, we call that leaning holy. You've lifted yourself from every other support. And Patton said, what is the word in your language for that? And he told him, and Patton had found his word for faith. Because that's what it means. It means to lean holy, to lift yourself from every other support. And that's what you need to do this morning if you've never done that before. You need to lift yourself up from any other means of support and trust completely in the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you've received the saving grace of God. God will give you suffering grace through this life, and He'll sustain you I'm all the way to the end. So hang all of your hope on Jesus Christ and His grace and on Him alone. Don't rest one sliver upon your own works or your own performance or your own merit. Rest it all in Him, and you'll be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You this morning that You are the God of all grace. You're the God of all kinds of grace. Whatever grace we need, you have a grace that's suitable to meet that need, suitable and sufficient. But Father, we thank you as well that you're the God of all power. You're the one who has dominion and might and rule. And so, Father, we come to you humbly this morning. We thank you for saving grace. And if there's anyone here this morning who's never lifted themselves up from every other support and trusted in Jesus Christ and the grace of God and that alone to save them, I pray that right where they sit in their heart and mind right now, that's what they'll do. They'll lean everything holy upon Jesus and the grace that's found in Him. Well, Father, thank You for Your work in our lives. Thank You for what You do for us every day, Lord. You're so gracious to us. And Father, most of all, we thank You. It's Your grace that will lead us home. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.